Isaiah chapter 34, that's on page 708 in your pew Bible. We're going to look at two chapters today quickly, 34 and 35. Why do we struggle with evangelism? Why do we find it so hard to share the gospel? We know that God opens up blind eyes. We know God changes hearts. And for proof of that, you need to look no farther than yourselves and the 500 plus people in this room. We know that God is more than capable to call people to himself through our simple, humble, weak, sometimes awkward, attempts to share the gospel. And yet, so often we live and act as if he isn't. Why? There's probably a number of reasons that we could list, but I think if we're being honest, most of us would say the number one reason is fear. I'm reading a book called Honest Evangelism by Rico Tice with about 15 people from our church. And in this book, by the way, we're loving this book. We're finding it really helpful. So if you're looking for a good summer read, Honest Evangelism. Uh, But in this book, the author talks about fear and evangelism, and he came up with this, this word called the pain line. And the pain line is the point of no return in every conversation about Jesus. When you move from a conversation about hobbies or sports or the weather or politics to an explicit conversation about Jesus, you've crossed over the pain line. And why is it called the pain line? Well, because when you cross it, you might experience some pain. Rejection, mocking, loss of friendship, an argument, all those things we love so much that accompany evangelism. Let me read just a quick excerpt from this book. I think it will be helpful for what we're trying to accomplish this morning. There may not be persecution, but we are in a growing culture of hostility to Christianity. It's not just apathy we face, it's antipathy. Many people really don't like the gospel. Sometimes they express that politely, sometimes not politely at all, but they don't like it. This really shouldn't surprise us. We believe the cross is the only way to be forgiven. We believe that one day everyone will be judged. So if you're going to talk about Jesus, you're going to get hurt. We will face rejection enough of the time to give us second thoughts. Because I don't know about you, but I don't particularly like getting hurt. We're wired to assume that if we're getting hit, something's gone wrong. And so whenever I tell someone the gospel and get hit, metaphorically speaking, there's a temptation to either stop saying anything or to change what I'm saying. I know there is a pain line that needs to be crossed if I tell people the gospel but I want to stay on the comfortable side of the pain line. Of course I do. I think that's the main reason why we don't do evangelism. So why don't we evangelize? Well, according to this author, fear of getting hit, of getting whooped, keeps us on the comfortable side of the pain line. So in this sermon, I want us to consider what is at stake if we stay on the comfortable side of the pain line. And to do that, we're going to look at the two final outcomes of all people. The Bible couldn't be any clearer. There awaits for all people either eternal judgment or eternal joy. 
And my hope is that as we look at these realities of judgment and joy, our hearts will be stirred and will be motivated for the love of people to cross the pain line. So in these two chapters, we get wave after wave of poetic images of God's judgment and God's salvation. Let's read chapter 34 first, starting in verse 1. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all the nations. His wrath is upon their armies. He will totally destroy them, and he will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will send up a stench. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. All the stars of the heavens will be dissolved. The sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like the withered leaves from the vine, like the shriveled figs from the fig tree. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom, the people I have totally destroyed. The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. It's covered with fat, the blood of lambs and goats, fat from kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in Edom, in the wild ox will fall with them, the bull calves with the great bulls. Their land will be drenched with blood and the dust will be soaked with fat. The Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution to uphold Zion's cause. Edom's streams will turn into pitch and her dust into burning sulfur and the land will become a blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night and day. Its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. The desert owl and the screech owl will possess it. The great owl and the raven will nest there. God will stretch over Edom the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of desolation. Her nobles will have nothing there to be called a kingdom. All her princes will vanish. Thorns will overrun her citadel, needles and brambles her strongholds. She will become a haunt for jackals, a home for owls. Desert creatures will meet with hyenas and Wild goats will bleat to each other. Their night creatures will also repose and find for themselves places of rest. The owl will nest there and lay eggs. She will hatch them and care for her young under the shadow of her wings. There also the falcons will gather, each with its mate. Look in the scroll of the Lord and read. None of these will be missing. Not one will lack her mate. For it is his mouth that has given the order. His spirit will gather them together. He allots their portions. His hand distributes them by measure. They will possess it forever and dwell there from generation to generation. Well, needless to say, this is about God's coming judgment. It begins with the Lord inviting everyone to pay attention, calling everyone to perk up as he pulls by the curtain and gives them a peek into the future of those who will reject him. And it's a scary picture. It's violent. It makes us uncomfortable. His whole chapter is poetry. It's using uh, unsettling images to grab our attention and make us realize how important this is. And they definitely catch our attention, don't they? Look, look at verse 3. This is probably the most graphic of the images. It's an image of a battle with so many casualties that there's no one left to bury the dead. Verse 4, the, the universe is kind of shaken up like a snow globe. Verses 5 through 7 is a picture of a bloody sword and a bloody altar. See, they're mentioned in verse 6, the sword of the Lord, just like the Lord has anger in verse 2, he has a sword in verse 6. And look what else he has in verse 6. He has a sacrifice. 
And what's the sacrifice? It's people. Verse 5, the people I have totally destroyed. The nation of Edom is singled out here. Edom is on the, uh, the southeast corner of Judah, and the Edomites and the Israelites had a long and violent history. Basra, there in verse 6, is the capital of Edom. And for, for generations, the Edomites would persecute God's people. So over time, Edom came to represent the evil in the world that's against God and his people. Edom is the antithesis of God's people. They represent all the nations mentioned in verse 2. What the Lord will do to Edom, he will do to all those who reject him. A battle, the breaking up of the universe, a sword, and a sacrifice. These are all images that the New Testament grabs and applies to the great judgment day at Christ's return. One way or another, there will be a sacrifice for your sin. And it will either be on, it will either be on Christ in your place, or it will be you. On the cross, the wrath of God is poured out on Christ so that we would not experience verses 1 through 7. The sword first left heaven for his son. And the sword that will one day come to judge people first came to judge Christ in our place. This is what we deserve, as hard as it is to swallow. It's not just what they out there deserve, it's what we deserve. This is what the blood of Christ has rescued us from, the just, right, horrible wrath of a holy God who is committed to doing what is right. A battle, a sacrifice, and a sword. And when we read these passages, we're not really sure what to do with them at first. Our first instinct may be to be, uh, to assume there's something wrong with God's perspective. You know, why is God freaking out? It's like, God, just chill. You know, go have a cup of green tea, spend an afternoon at Nantasket, and just mellow out. Like, is God like the grumpy, mean neighbor who throws a fit every single time your kid's soccer ball accidentally ends up on his front lawn? Like, what is up with God? And when I find myself taken aback by passages like this, I'm reminded that there is a wide gap between my view of sin and God's. It shows us that God takes right and wrong far more seriously than even the most ethical person on earth. It shows us that God is far more just than we even want him to be. It's not God's perspective that's wrong. It's ours. Sin deserves judgment. The judgment of God or the wrath of God is one of, if not the most, offensive teachings in the Bible. People are really offended by it. They're, uh, you know, they, they're, they stumble over it. They're troubled by it. It's actually perfectly reasonable and sensible to be troubled by it. In fact, that's the point. But just because it offends us doesn't mean it's not true. All of us you know, witness imperfect justice here on earth. All of us crave and long for a day when justice will finally be executed. You know, we witness imperfect justice. The bad guy gets away. The bad guy wins. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. And imperfect justice makes us feel vulnerable. It makes us frustrated. It makes us feel weak and helpless. And all of us are longing for a day 
when it will be set right. The wrath of God, the, the judgment of God, is him finally bringing the justice we all know this world needs. So we really aren't you know, offended by the fact that God would be angry at the wrong and evil that, that we see, that God would come and act to do something to stop evil. We're not offended by that. What we're offended by is this. Well, that maybe we are part of the evil that God would come and judge. Maybe we aren't as good as we think we are. Maybe, just maybe, God has higher standards for us than we even do for ourselves. So it shouldn't surprise us that God would come in judgment, that he would come and act to set things right. What should surprise us is that he hasn't already. God has been far more patient than you and I would ever be. We experience a little bit of injustice, like someone scratching our car or cutting, us, cutting in front of us in line, and we freak out. We're so quick to right the wrongs done to us. And yet for thousands and thousands of years, billions of people have committed trillions of sins. And God withholds his judgment. He has been very patient with his judgment, but incredibly impatient with his grace. He has kept his sword in heaven, but poured out grace on earth. So God has anger, God has a sword, he has a sacrifice. Look what else God has in verse 8. The Lord has a day of vengeance. So judgment is coming, it will look like a sacrifice. And now we see that it will look like the deconstruction of the world and society. There's a whole bunch of images in this section from Genesis. It's almost like Genesis 1 in reverse. Right? In, in judgment, God makes the world fit chaos. Notice how a functioning world in society is slowly transformed into a desert where only wild animals and weeds can live. Let's look at a few of these images. Look at verse 9. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur, her land will become blazing pitch, it will not be quenched night and day, its smoke will rise forever. This is language from the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative in Genesis 19. And there's more language from Genesis. Look at the second half of verse 11. God will stretch over Edom the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of desolation. The measuring line, the plumb line, were used in construction and in the dividing out of new land, new property. So they're used in an ironic way here. What would normally be used to construct and create order is used as, they're used as instruments of deconstruction in disorder. And what's the measuring line called? It's the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of desolation. Guess how else these two Hebrew words for chaos and desolation can be translated? Formless and void. You remember how the world is described before God brings order to it in Genesis 1-2? Now the earth was formless and void. It was chaotic and desolate. Same Hebrew words. So this is a, a, a picture of God deconstructing or deforming the world. So the judgment of God is him simply taking away what he gave. He gave this world purpose and beauty, and human sin is rejecting that purpose and defacing God's beauty. 
You know, he gave this world life in, in order, and sin wants death and chaos. God's judgment is him giving the world what they want, death and chaos. You know, his judgment is like a, a giant wrecking ball from a crane in heaven sweeping across the world, destroying everything that we've built and made. So judgment is coming. It will look like a sacrifice. It will look like the deconstruction of the world and society. I think one of the big challenges in wrapping our minds around passages like this is it seems so disconnected from our everyday experience. Thank God. You know, we, we read these epic descriptions of God's end-time judgment, and then we look outside. Pretty nice out today. Trees are almost in full bloom. Sun came up, came up yesterday and the day before. We go to work. We go to school. We go to church, we go to bed, rinse and repeat. And we always assume there will be a tomorrow because there was a yesterday. And it's easy in the rhythm of life to forget how urgent evangelism really is. There's always time until there isn't. I learned this lesson the hard way. I was eating dinner and I got a phone call from a friend It's been a long time since I talked to him, and so I answered enthusiastically. His tone was much different. Dave, something horrible has happened. Our friend had died. I was a new Christian. I, I wanted to share the gospel with this guy. Just thought I had time. I'll do it next weekend. Now, there wasn't a next weekend. I use his obituary as a bookmark in my Bible just to remind me of how little time we have and how urgent evangelism really is. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying that we should live in a state of panic, that we should live as though the fate of all our friends and family depends on us. God is sovereign. God's in control. Only God can change human hearts. Only God can open up blind eyes. But let's not use the sovereignty of God as an excuse not to live with a sense of urgency. He doesn't want us freaking out and panicking as if the whole world depends upon us. But he also doesn't want us to live and act as if hell isn't real. Do you ever get concerned I get it. You can't sit around thinking about hell all day. You've got jobs. You've got families. It's, you can't function if you do that. But you've got to think about it sometimes. And when was the last time you pleaded with the Lord to show someone his beauty and his grace and his love? When was the last time you wept because someone was rejecting Christ? You know what will move us beyond the pain line? It's not having all the answers. It's not having an absence of fear. It's compassion. Compassion for people headed for this. So chapter 34 ends and we're left in a chaotic desert of God's judgment. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you always know that hope is around the corner. That's chapter 35. Chapter 34 is God's judgment coming. Chapter 35 is God's salvation coming. 
And in chapter 35, the grace of God transforms the desert into a beautiful garden, transforms fears into singing, and puts lost people on a path that leads safely home. Chapter 35 is the negative image of chapter 34. There's, it's in stark contrast to chapter 34. As I read this chapter, see if you can find all the points of contrast. The things that were destroyed in 34, how they're remade in 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame leap like a deer and the mute shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground a bubbling spring. In the haunt where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And there will be a highway there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go on, go about on it. Nor will lion be there, nor any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. The ransom of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Did you see all the contrasts? Let's look at a few of them. Look at verse 1. Look what happens to the desert. The image is of a, a dead, dull desert rejoicing as it sees the glory and the splendor of God. Verse 1, the land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice. Verse 2, it will rejoice with joy. And look at the transformation. It says the wilderness will blossom. Verse 2, it will burst into bloom. So chapter 34 is a picture of decreation. Chapter 35 is a picture of recreation as God comes in his glory to make everything new. Chapter 35 begins by giving us a picture of the end, the new heavens and the new earth, the new paradise, the new garden of Eden. This is a picture of salvation. Sometimes the Bible tells us about salvation like we see in Paul's letters, and sometimes it shows us, like in this passage. And the salvation of God is so expansive that it not only includes the rescue of people, but the recreation of the entire world so that it thrives the way it was intended to, bubbling up with joy. And in what God will do for the world at the end, he first does here and now in human hearts. You know, in conversion, as our hearts are transformed, as we see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. You know, have you ever noticed that, you know, before you came to faith, your life was like a desert? There was, was dead, there was no life there. 
But then when you come to put your trust in Christ and repent of your sins, all of a sudden, the fruit of the Spirit begins to to bubble up and and grow up within you. You Have you ever noticed how many illustrations in the Bible uh, the Bible uses for Christian growth and maturity that are plants and trees and fruit? It even says that we are a new creation. And that's not just that you become a different person, like, you know, you version 2.0. It's more than that. When you become a Christian, you become a living illustration to the world of what God will do at the end when he remakes everything. That's you. Evangelism, then, is calling people to be part of something new and beautiful that God will make. When people come to faith, they're they're giving a taste of the garden. They're they're giving a taste of paradise, of heaven. Think of God as as a waiter coming by with an appetizer plate and giving people little bite-sized portions of the new heavens and the new earth. Evangelism is giving people an opportunity to experience the future in their hearts when they come to faith and see Christ for who he really is. What an exciting mission the Lord has given us. But there's more to evangelism than just one person to another. Oftentimes, we only think of evangelism as personal evangelism, you know, one to another, and that's wonderful and, and true and biblical and it's part of our calling. But there's also a, a body component, a corporate component to evangelism. The, the church is a prequel to heaven. It's the spring buds growing up from the ground after a long, dark winter. It's the place where the fruit of the Spirit is most ripe. Our lives together bear witness to the truth of the gospel. The church displays the gospel. You invite a non-Christian to your growth group, and they see how we love each other and encourage each other with God's word. You're giving them a little taste of the garden. Or when we go down to the, some folks from our church go down to the Weymouth Homeless Shelter, and we bring a meal, and we laugh with people, and we tell them about Jesus, they're smelling the fragrance of heaven. Or when you invite non-Christian friends to your cookouts this summer, and they see the love and the joy that South Shore Baptist members have for each other, they're getting a glimpse into the future. Our evangelism isn't only about one person sharing the gospel to another, but it's about exposing people to the community that the gospel creates, one of love and joy and patience, one with humility, one where we actually care about each other and serve each other sacrificially a place where there should be no cliques or worldly ways of defining each other. This is our task. This is our privilege as a church. The body of Christ is one of the best evidences for the truth of Christianity. And there is not another group of people on this planet that I would rather lock arms with in displaying the beauty of the gospel than you. I look at this church and I see the beautiful garden of God. I see people who have the fruit of the Spirit, those who have been given the life of Christ. I see a garden that's meant to grow more lush and full and beautiful with every sermon, with every Bible study, with every prayer, with every act of kindness and humility, with every trial we faithfully endure together. Guard it, 
South Shore Baptist Church. Don't let the devil destroy the life here. Don't let your sin make the fruit of the Spirit rotten. Preserve the beauty of Christ's church. My prayer is that after this interim period, we will look more beautiful as God's people. There will be many opportunities for us to sin as we go through all these changes. Preserve the beauty of Christ's church. Let's go through this with humility and love and patience. Let's keep South Shore Baptist Church a place for people who don't know Christ, walking in deserts, to come and see the beautiful garden of God. Well, the passage moves from the transformation of the place to the transformation of the people. Look at verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. The Israelites that Isaiah was first talking to were surrounded by enemies that wanted to destroy them. You had Assyria in the north, and you had uh, Egypt in the west, and Babylon in the east, and they were pressing in. They had jelly legs and shaky hands. They needed a savior. So Isaiah calls the people to look forward to a day when God will come and save them. We look forward to Christ's second coming, but they look forward to his first coming. And what does Isaiah say will happen when God comes? Look at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what we see Jesus doing in his ministry in the Gospels. In fact, in Matthew 11, when John the Baptist's disciples asked Jesus if he really is the Messiah, what does Jesus say? He quotes Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. He says, yeah, I'm the Messiah. You know how you know? Blind see, deaf hear, lame walk. The, the, this, the miracles that Jesus did were, were signs that the kingdom of heaven had invaded earth. The miracles that he did were little samplings, bite-sized portions of what the, fu- the fully realized final kingdom of God will be like. In, the, in Jesus, we see the blessings of the kingdom of heaven come to earth. And he not only came with glimpses of his kingdom, he also came with the way of the king. He he called himself the way, the truth, and the life. He came with the way of discipleship. He called us to follow him. And that's how this chapter ends. It ends with a picture of God's people on a journey home, walking on the path that God has made clear. Look at verse 8. And a highway will be there. That's literally a highway. So it's a way that's high that you can see. So it will be clear. And look at verse 9. No line will be there, no ferocious beast get on it. So it's a way that's safe. You know, and who's on this way? Second half of verse 9. Only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransom of the Lord will return. So it's a way for God's people. And where does it lead? They will enter Zion with singing. It leads home. In the Bible, Zion is used to represent a few different things. It can represent the city of Jerusalem. It actually can represent 
the temple of Jerusalem. Zion is the place where God is. It's the place where God rules and where his people can be in his presence. So in the New Testament, Zion refers to our final, full, heavenly dwelling with God. And even in this Old Testament passage, this heavenly Zion, this new Jerusalem is in view. Because look at verse 10. What is this place? It's a place of what? Everlasting joy. Like we saw that judgment is forever in 35, we see that joy is forever. I'm sorry, judgment is forever in 34, we see that joy is forever in chapter 35. And look at the final contrast, the last sentence. Gladness and joy will overtake them as sighing and sorrow flee away. This is how the great story of the Bible concludes. With God and his people finally, fully reunited, experiencing the joy of the Lord. Let me read to you quickly from Revelation 21. You don't have to turn there. Listen how similar this sounds to those last three verses in chapter 35. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, that's Zion, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Ready for this? And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Brothers and sisters, this is why we evangelize for the everlasting joy of people. Because God has made a way for people to enjoy him forever. So don't think of evangelism as something you have to do every once in a while out of religious duty or to keep yourself from feeling guilty. Think of it as a privilege to tell people living in a desert, awaiting a far worse desert, about the way that leads to their heavenly home. Judgment or joy. These are the two final outcomes of all people. That's why we cross the pain line, so that people will know joy rather than judgment. And when our hearts are gripped by the horror of God's wrath and the joy of his salvation, we will open our mouths to speak the message of the gospel that puts sinners on the way to their heavenly home. My prayer is that after five years, when we are evaluating our commitment to our vision, we will be able to say that South Shore Baptist Church is full of people who, despite their fears, are willing to cross the pain line for the love of people and the glory of God. Let's pray. Comfort your people, Lord. Give us hearts that love people eyes that see people, hands that serve people, mouths that speak to people, for your glory. Amen.